You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, uh, here we are. It's a Monday and once again, uh, we appear to be on the horns of a dilemma. The Metropolitan Police seem to think it's okay to be violent towards women who are involved in a protest about violence against women. Their boss, Cressida Dick, who spends most of her time in an armchair, has hit out at people calling for her resignations as a result of what happened at the weekend as armchair critics. Women who were told not to hold a vigil for murder victim Sarah Everard did so anyway and were then joined by the usual renter mob type who used the solemn event as an excuse to have a punch-up with the cops who suffered, of course, injuries to 26 officers assaulted as a result of what was going on. They say they were simply enforcing the COVID lockdown rules, but of course, they weren't just doing that, were they? Because last night, they were just involving themselves in carrying out the duties of the police uh, and invoking the COVID rules, but they didn't do the same thing. They had completely different strategy. It's all a colossal mess. And later, another bill comes before Parliament to tighten the laws and restrictions around COVID. We'll be asking Tory MP Deanna Davison what it is all about. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, Peter Hitchens joins us. The Mail on Sunday columnist will have plenty to say about the continuing erosion of our liberties, not least the rather inconsistent policing of different protests. And, of course, he's been writing in his Mail on Sunday column as well about the need to keep the royal family as well. We'll also hear from royal author Angela Levin a week on from that interview and the fallout over the weekend, plus the news that Megs apparently fancies herself as president of the free world. (laughs) Heaven help us. Harry, Harry, I want to be president. Harry, does that make Harry the first man? 0344 499 1000, or will he be of indeterminate gender, perhaps? Uh, as ever, of course, we want to hear from you. It's the first proper week back to school for most children. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what are you being told? Plus, we'll hear from columnist and music promoter Donald McLeod on a new push to open more venues sooner. And we'll bring you the latest on the vaccine problems as well from Norway. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the land and on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Now, pretty much every front page this morning uh, is all about the weekend's events. Sarah Everard's family talking to The Sun, uh, saying that her, her murder should bring positive change in protecting women. The shaming of the Met is what it says on the front page uh, of the uh, Daily Mail. The Guardian, defiant Met chief refuses to quit, hits out at armchair critics. Defiant Met chief on the front page of The Times as well. I mean, it's all pretty ridiculous. I mean, my take on it, first of all, before we talk to Deanna Davidson, uh, was that everybody in this kind of whole scenario was in the wrong. Some people did it for good reasons, other people did it for bad reasons, but everything that happened at the weekend really was completely, for me, utterly needless. Let's talk to Deanna Davidson, Conservative MP for Bishop Portland. Deanna, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. Um, I mean, it's been a very difficult weekend for so many reasons. Um, What's your sort of take on on what happened um, on Saturday and where it all went wrong? Well, without being there, Mike, it's it's hard to know exactly how the chain of events unfolded. Um, I think it's quite right that the Home Secretary has asked for a full report on the events of what happened um, at, at the vigil. And, and, you know, we've all seen some of those shocking images um, of uh, what looked like, you know, from those snippets, quite kind of heavy handed tactics. Um, but again, we've heard that 26 police officers were injured. I, I don't envy any police officer trying to police a protest, let alone in a time of, of pandemic. Um, you know, I just want to make it uh, one point really clear kind of before I go on that what happened to Sarah Everard is um, horrific. And I think what it's done is opened up um, the confidence of a lot of other women to share their experiences and share their thoughts on what is frankly um, an epidemic across our society of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and a lot of women being too afraid to speak out. And had we not been in a time of um, of COVID and of pandemic, um, I would have attended the vigil myself. I think it's really important that um, women and men stand together against some of these horrific injustices. But the point was um, the organizers of the vigil asked for it not to go ahead based on kind of public safety advice, um, public health advice. And um, as you saw, I think, I think you used the phrase rent a mob earlier in your opening, mm. uh, Mike. Unfortunately, there were people there who perhaps weren't necessarily there for the right reasons, who were there to protest, who were there to cause trouble. And I think what that's done is unfortunately undermine the very cause that most people were trying to fight for. Well, I think when you see hordes of people chanting F the police, no justice, no peace, as they did last night as well outside of Downing Street. I mean, it's pathetic, isn't it? Because it just takes you back. I mean, last night, again, uh, as I was driving back up to London, I was hearing reports of uh, the police having to protect the statue of Winston Churchill. And I found myself thinking, what on earth has this got to do with the horrific, ghastly murder of a young woman? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I read something yesterday, which was, I think, from one of one of Sarah's friends um, saying that she was really disappointed by how um, her friend's death had kind of been been hijacked in mm. this way. Yeah. And that's right. What we've got to remember is this is a young woman who was walking home and had this tragic thing happen to her. Her family and her friends and her loved ones are still grieving that. We cannot allow this to be hijacked by people who have a hidden agenda. This mm. has to be about doing what's right to ensure um, that women feel protected, that women feel safe, that um, the criminal justice system is there to um, punish people who commit any of these horrific crimes, be it sexual assault um, or, or the or what we've seen happen to Sarah. Um, and it's about having that conversation now. It's about getting everyone around the table, men, women, policymakers, victims, perpetrators, making sure that we are um, doing whatever we can 
to make our streets safer, to make women feel safer, um, and also to ensure that prosecutions going ahead the way they should be. Yeah, and there's no question that I think anybody would disagree with any of that, Deanna. But I think also we've got to be a bit careful here of not making out that you know horrendous and ghastly acts of criminal intent and murder will continue to happen. They do happen. They don't happen, thankfully, very often. You know, the Yorkshire Ripper was a lorry driver. We didn't start talking about banning all lorry drivers from driving around Britain. You know, Fred West was a builder. We didn't say Fred West is a builder, therefore all builders should be you know somehow investigated to see whether or not they've got any dark thoughts. You know what I mean? And I think in this day and age in which we live, there is a certain hysteria that kicks in where people go, well, it's all, you know, their fault. Let's let's make the streets safer. And, you know, up to a point you can do that. And I, t- and I get the idea of people's attitudes changing and all of that. But, you know, I've never been a person who treats women badly ever in my life. You know, there might be one or two women that have known me who would disagree with that. But you know what I mean? You know, I've never, you know, I was talking to my sons about it the weekend, both teenagers, with the older one starting to kind of go out with girls. And, you know, it, it would never occur to them to, to sexually harass anybody. Do you know what I mean? Completely. And that's why I think, you know, the ridiculous calls from the, the green peer saying that we should put all men on curfew after 6pm in the evening yeah. is completely ludicrous. Mm. Just, I mean, I, I'm not even going to go into all of the reasons why it would be completely unworkable and ridiculous, but you're exactly right. You know, we have to be careful that we're not tarring everyone with the same brush, that mm. we're not saying everyone's a bad guy because the vast majority of people are good honest people with good intentions just trying to live their lives in a in in you know in a fair a fair way um but you know there is there is a problem out there um you know i I don't think i certainly would never suggest that all men are the problem that's not the case but certainly with the vast majority of women who do face sexual harassment sexual assault rape etc it does tend to be from men and we have to be realistic about that we have to be realistic about um, the facts and the figures and the statistics. Yes, we do. So but, we but equally, to... but equally, we have to be careful not to misuse those statistics because you know this mm-hmm. is a government that consistently tells us that they're driven by the data, which we'll come on to in a minute. You know, but people misuse data all the time. You know, there's plenty of men that get assaulted by other men, not necessarily sexually, mm-hmm. but sometimes sexually. You know, I was molested as a boy on the tube years ago when I was about 12 years old, going to school by a bloke. You know, stuff like that but does I... happen to, to to men and boys as well. Well, I was, I was about to come on to that, Mike. I was about to say that, um, you know, we have to be very clear that when it comes to sexual assault and, and assault in general, this isn't just an issue that does affect women, though. You know, we see there's, there's huge issues across the LGBT community with mm. this. And obviously, you know, the campaign I'm running on, on one punch assaults, which yes. tends to be a, a bloke on bloke kind of issue. So I think I think it's a much wider conversation we need. You know, I'm really pleased that the Home Secretary has reopened the um, the consultation into violence against women and girls um, as a starting point and that the Prime Minister will be chairing a meeting of the um, the Crime Task Force on violence against women and girls. Um, but I think it, it needs a look more broadly at, um, at society and how people treat each other, but also how that criminal justice system is, is making sure all of those cases right across the board are being heard properly and fairly. Absolutely. And it's not a good look for the police, is it, for what happened on Saturday night? I mean, neither, neither one of us was there, and that's true, but we have seen some of the things that happened because they get recorded on, on film. And regardless of whatever the provocation was, you know, to see police officers, male police officers, manhandling women, uh, protesters, um, vigilists, whatever you want to call them, sticking them face down in the the park. I mean, it's not, it just doesn't look very good, does it? Uh, it, It's certainly not good optics, Mike, you're right. Obviously, as you said, we weren't there. We're going to have to uh, await the outcome of the report from the Met. Um, You know, 
for the most part, I think our police officers are incredible. The job that they do and they're doing under such intense pressure at the moment um, is incredible. So I'm really pleased that as part of the, the policing bill that we're introducing, um, we're actually rolling out the police covenant, making sure that our police officers are properly protected, getting support they need both while serving and into retirement. Um, but I think, you know, this does raise raise questions about kind of appropriate use of force. And I'm hoping that in that report, you know, a lot of those questions that people have right now and questions that I think people fairly have will be answered. And I wonder whether this also, this weekend's events, will kind of shine a, a light on the craziness and the kind of um, ridiculous situation that the police find themselves in, where they are effectively trying to impose um, lockdown regulations, trying to stop people from breaching those regulations because they might be considered to be uh, causing danger to people um, by causing even more danger to people by getting close to them, uh, by allowing groups to kind of huddle up together uh, to, by, by making a, you know, forming a ring around the uh, the bandstand in, in Clapham Common. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's obvious to anyone looking at that from the outside that the rules are ridiculous, isn't it? Well, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on kind of operational policing. You know, I, I thought as a kid I might want to go into the police force, but um, it's not something I've ever pursued. And I think it's right that police forces do have that operational independence to to kind of choose how they do police these situations. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a time of pandemic. It's something that's so unprecedented. And as I say, I, I don't envy them at all and praise them. You know, praise the no, but what I'm saying is, is effectively, Deanna, is it that you don't have to be an expert in policing to know that if they are trying to enforce a law which is supposed to keep people apart, but by enforcing that law, it forces people closer together, then evidently and obviously it's madness. Well, it's, it's, it's an impossible situation this pandemic's put us in. I think everyone's just trying their best in the circumstances. And what about this um, this bill that's before you guys in Parliament today and tomorrow, which is a kind of a, a brushing up, I suppose, of where we are? Um, it may indeed extend more police powers. It may limit them. What What is it about and what are you going to vote for? Well, I'm going to be voting with the bill, but firstly, because it was one of our manifesto commitments that we'd you know, get tougher on crime, tougher on sentencing, making sure that some of the most... Um, violent and, and, and heinous criminals um, serve much longer um, of their sentences. So for, you know, the most violent crimes and the most um, horrific crimes, people are currently, you know, will serve half and then it's reviewed. That's going to be up to two thirds, which I think is absolutely the right approach. Um, there's going to be more done to help kind of protect uh, protect women and domestic abuse victims. We're looking at um, pre-charge bail so that we don't see an incident that happens again, like what happened to Kay Richardson, where... Um, her partner was released under investigation and then killed her in the time mm. in which he was released. There's a lot of really good stuff in this bill. And as I outlined earlier, the police covenant, making sure our police officers are properly protected, that retired police officers are looked after, that special constables can um, actually join the police federation and have the, the kind of perks and benefits of that um, and the support of the police federation. There's a lot of really good, strong, proper conservative stuff in there. So I'm going to be backing this bill 100%. OK, but what about the other issue, which I mentioned last week around this whole um, um, Sarah Everard situation, whereby an awful lot of the people now who are complaining about men are the same people who would campaign to release prisoners from prison on the grounds that they've all been rehabilitated. And one of the problems for me about releasing sex offenders, for example, uh, is that they tend to re-offend an awful lot more than other types of criminals. You know, a rapist will come out of prison and will more than likely rape somebody again. A sexual assaulter will probably sexually assault somebody again. And my worry is that there's too many of those kind of people out on the street because they've been freed by what I regard as our rather over-liberal justice system. 
Well, you know, right, right from being a kid, I've always believed in, in tough justice. I think it's important because, you know, what, what is a prison sentence for? I mean, one, it's there to act as a deterrent. Two, it's there to act as um, a punishment. And three, it's there to act as protection for the public. People need to remember that, you know, when people are talking about, um, about you know, early release, et cetera, they're the three factors that influence, you know, why people would get a prison sentence and the three factors that, uh, that, that are there about why prison sentences are used. So for the most violent crimes, for the most heinous crimes, you know, for, for murderers and rapists, it's right that they're serving um, a long time mm. in prison to punish them, but also to protect the public. Um, I do think there's an argument for some sort of restorative justice. I think there are some people who can be rehabilitated and won't um, offend again. But actually, in some ways, I think that's an argument for actually keeping them in the system for longer to allow them more time, more support, more counselling, more therapy to actually help them rehabilitate and get themselves on the straight and narrow. Yeah, but that doesn't um, so happen, I, does it? I mean, that's pie in the sky. I mean, it's nice that you think that way, but I just don't believe that people who do that kind of crime will ever be rehabilitated. It's like saying somebody who commits a sexual assault on a child uh, is not going to do it again. I mean, I've, I've interviewed paedophiles and they say to me, I can't stop what I do. There's nothing that stops me doing it because I because I'm 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 sick in the head. But this is precisely why we are um, extending that sort of minimum um, time served in prison from uh, half to two thirds, which I think is absolutely the right approach. Then obviously um, the sentence uh, the it's, it's then reviewed um, about whether or not they'd be released based on kind of threats to the public, etc. Um, I think there's a, there's a wide conversation to have about sentencing overall, but, you know, we're in the constraints of the criminal justice system we have from the current sentencing framework. Um, I think we're, we're doing what we can to try and improve that. We're increasing some of those sentences. We're keeping people in prison for longer for the worst crimes. I think it's definitely a step in the right direction, Mike, and that's exactly well, why I'm backing the bill this week. Well, that's good because a lot of people voted for the Tory party back in uh, December 2019 for the purposes of law and order, uh, amongst many other things that they wanted you to get, to get on with. What do you make of the um, arguments going on at the moment as well about the right to protest because there's an awful lot of people who are moaning now uh, that they didn't have the right to protest at the weekend when uh, they didn't care uh, about anybody else not having the right to protest when they would shut down when they tried to have like anti-lockdown marches for example you know there's a very big double standard going on here isn't there um, there is. I think people have really, really strong views on this matter, depending on kind of which side of the argument they're on. Um, I, I firmly believe in the right to protest, much as it can be annoying, much mm. as it can be mildly disruptive, much as my office faces down onto uh, Parliament Street where loads of the marches go by and it's really frustrating. Um, I believe in the right to protest. I think it's really important in a democracy. But um, there is a point at which those protests become dangerous. They become disruptive to everyday people's way of lives. You know, they start blocking transport networks. They try and block uh, deliveries from printing presses. There are points at which legitimate protest steps over the line. And I think it's absolutely right that our police need the powers to be able to crack down on those when they do get to that level of disruptiveness. Yeah, but what I'm saying to you, as you, as you well know, is that there are plenty of protests that did take place last year which were not disrupted. Uh, and in fact, which the police regarded as so kind of saint that they should kneel down before them. No, I, I, I agree with you, but that's the point. It has to be about disruptiveness. And once again, you know, it's not my place to talk about the operational independence of the police. There were some scenes we saw from the police last year that I was surprised by. Um, and I think some of those protests did take a nasty turn at certain points. Um, and that's why the police need the powers to be able to act so that if those protests do reach a level of disruptiveness that becomes harmful to the public, they have the powers to act and they're able to do so, break up those protests, make sure everyone's safe. Do you think Cresta Dick should resign? Uh, not my job to say, to be honest, Mike. Um, you know, I, 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 okay. I don't you know. Can have, you can have an opinion on it. It's all right. <laughs> I can have an opinion on it. But at the moment, I don't, I don't think I've got enough of the facts to be able to have a, a strong and valid opinion.
But she's not exactly what you would call a great leader, is she? I mean, from the beginning of her career, and I don't know if it was, was the actual beginning of her career, with the shooting of, of, of de Menezes uh, in a tube station after the, uh, uh, after the bombing of 7-7, uh, all the way up through to the dancing of the police with Extinction Rebellion, to her clapping on a, on a, on a bridge for the NHS without being socially distanced from people. I mean, she's accident prone. Um, she doesn't appear to have any consistent policies and I don't see any justification why she should stay in the job, to be honest. Well, I don't know, Mike, as I say, for once as a politician, I'm going to kind of plead the fifth on this one, just in the sense that, you know, I haven't followed Cressida's career enough to be able to have a really strong and valid opinion that I'd be able to back up with enough evidence. OK, well, let me ask you one final question. Then lockdown, um, I'm, as you know, a, a great advocate of freeing up the economy sooner rather than later. Um, all we get out of the government at the moment is we're following the data, not the dates. But the data is telling us, basically, uh, that we've got fewer... Uh, COVID deaths, we've got fewer COVID admissions to hospital, we've got massive amounts of vaccines doing the rounds uh, and getting out there. Um, I think we're in better shape now than we've been since about last October. You know, why on earth do we have to wait? And there's a lawsuit now going on uh, from hospitality. Why on earth does hospitality have to wait until May before they can make any money? Well, you, you know me, Mike, you know that I want to get things unlocked as soon as possible. But I really kind of do stand behind what we heard Jonathan Van Tam say in the sense there is going to be a lag in the data at each stage of the unlock. We need to see what the actual impact of that is on cases, on hospitalizations, on the impact on the NHS. And that's going to take a few weeks to really sink in. And that's why we've got the time frame that we've got. I know it's really hard. I know how much I'm, you know, kind of missing my family. I know how much, you know, I want to get back to the pub. I know how much these businesses are suffering. That's why we've put in place such a kind of extensive support packages. We've got the restart grants. We're really trying. Um, but I think we really do need to follow that data and give the data time to manifest so that we really know the impact of it before we move on to the next stage. Yeah, but, you know, when you actually take time out and look at the rules as they are, and I did this at the weekend and came up with a rather ridiculous Monty Python-esque scenario, because apparently now uh, you can have a funeral at which 30 people can attend. So your loved ones, your friends can attend an event with you as long as you're dead. But they can't do it if you're alive. I think we need to recognise that um, funerals are such kind of dark but important occasions. You know, um, I, I would hope that uh, I'm able to have a birthday party next year because I didn't get one uh, this year or whatever. But a funeral is a one off. A funeral is a, a very difficult time all round. I, th I think it is a different circumstance. Do you? I mean, my mother's yeah. 97, for example. I can't see her because she's in America. It's pretty important <laughs> I do because she might not be around for very long. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I can't imagine how hard that must be, Mike. Well, I mean, it's very hard. It's very difficult. I spoke yeah. to her yesterday and she she's really upset that she hasn't now seen me for over a year. And normally mm -hmm. I see her twice a year, you know. And that's very tough. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, I'd like to know that politicians are, t are taking time to think about stuff like that. Well, we're, we're certainly taking time. This entire year has been a year of, of kind of soul searching, um, reviewing what's important and trying to do what's right in a time of such kind of quick evolving situation uh, circumstances. Mm. It's... Um, it's not been an easy one, but I can assure you we're all just trying to do the right thing. OK. Leonard Davidson, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Bishop Auckland there on the events of the weekend. Uh, she doesn't know whether Cressida Dick should resign because she hasn't uh, really followed her career enough. And that's fair enough. I mean, you don't have to go out on a limb on it. I think she should. I think she's been completely and utterly useless. Let me just put that down there on the record in case you're in any doubt. Cressida Dick, you are a disgrace. This is Talk Radio. <laughs> 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. You know the number. We need to hear from you, of course. 0344 499 1000. If you were at any of the events over the weekend, uh, I'd like to know uh, what you saw, uh, what you heard uh, and what you did as well. Because quite frankly, uh, I think everybody uh, involved in it was in the wrong from the beginning to the end. Let's talk to Ken Marsh now, Chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation. Ken, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for coming on. It's a difficult time to be a police officer. I realise that. I see that your Federation statement says 26 Metropolitan Police officers were assaulted, punched, kicked, spat at um, over the weekend uh, because of their uh, attempted enforcement of the COVID-19 regulations. Um, politicians are, are being critical of you. Um, what do you make of that? Well, firstly, Mike, let me first say that our hearts, thoughts and minds go out to the family of Sarah uh, and of Sarah and I can assure you that every single serving police officer in the Metropolitan Police feels this so deeply uh, that it, you know, they're human beings and they feel it. So in relation to uh, your comments about politicians, I, I, I'm deeply saddened by, by the way they've gone about this. At the end of the day, Mike, let's be very, very clear. Let's set aside the issues in relation to Sarah just for one minute Let's be very clear what we're talking about. We act on behalf of the government and the Queen, the Crown, and we are sent out to do their behest. Over the last 13 months, there have been 68 new pieces of legislation, all in relation to COVID, all in relation to people not gathering, not coming together, etc., etc., etc. Over the weekend, we very clearly tried to deal with what was put in front of us in a manner that would be acceptable. And, and then we've had all the commentary around, well, they were going to steward it themselves, they were going to do this, they were going to do that. They can't do that. This is public areas. This is a policing issue. It was not allowed because of COVID legislation. So that's the first bit. So then when we move forward from that, we were faced with a situation up until 6, 6.30, it had been absolutely fine. People were coming, showing their respect and moving on. They then started to gather large crowds, and within that crowd, there were agitators. Now, we as police know this because we know the individuals we're talking about mm. who were there only for one reason, and it wasn't to have a vigil. We then saw, you know, the unprecedented situation of the flowers being stamped on and people starting to try and speak. Well, that becomes a rally then. It becomes not a vigil. It becomes a political rally. You are not allowed to do that. Now, this is the final bit before I shut up and give you a chance to speak. <laughs> My colleagues, who I represent up to the rank and file of chief inspectors, are the foot soldiers. By that I mean they are out there and they are getting instructions in their earpiece. If it's a lawful instruction, they act upon it. They can only not act upon it if it's not lawful. Well, it is lawful to say... That individual is doing X, Y, Z, arrest them, deal with them. And that's what they were doing. So to throw the abuse and hatred at my colleagues who were trying to do their job out there, I just find abhorrent. No, I get all of that, and I don't disagree with the word you say. The only thing I would say is that I was led to believe, and I wasn't there, so I've only got somebody mm. else's word for it, that the, the, the stamping on the flowers and the walking on the flowers was done by the police when they made a ring around the uh, the bandstand at Clapham Common, which, which you and I both probably know quite well. Um, now, I understand that the police are given instructions, but clearly because of what happened on Saturday, on Sunday night, they were given different instructions because on Sunday in Parliament Square, they didn't do any of that. Right, so hold on. You've got two separate things that you're talking about. Yeah. The first one was the police p 
policing a scenario. The second one was against the police. So we, of course, take a different structure and strategy to what we're doing. We're not going to stand there if it is against the police. Saturday wasn't against the police. Sunday was. So you've got to define the two very clearly. We are not going to be the agitators and stand there and be agitated against because that's just ridiculous. No, but, 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 no but I mean, let's, let's make, make sure we're talking about the same thing. Yep. I'm saying on Sunday there was another vigil yep. held in Parliament Square right, and no. the police were much more hands-off on that front. Right, but it was against the police the reason they were there on Sunday. Saturday wasn't. Yes, but on, Sunday, the, but on Sunday the police were more restrained than they were on Saturday. Absolutely, because the strategy had changed oh. and the tactics had changed. Now, again, this comes back to my foot soldiers, my colleagues out there. They go on what the briefing is and what is put in front of them from the senior leaders, the commanders. That's, that's exactly what took place. But, but would you accept, and I'm not saying it's your fault, Ken, or your officer's fault or your representative's fault, but would it not have been simpler, for example, to just let the vigil take place? Because had the police not turned up in the way that they did, then there wouldn't have been the agitators, presumably. The agitators would have stayed away on Saturday, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mike, you have a fair comment. And, and I'm not, you know, I, as a human being, there, there is some gravity in what you're saying. But then you've got to weigh up what the legislation and what we're being instructed to do. Now, that's you should put that question to senior leaders and senior commanders in the police. Yeah. I, I speak for the rank and file who are instructed to do what they do. Yes. Um, so and is their job know, now impossible, though? Because, I mean, what we're seeing, right, and the pictures and the optics that we saw on Saturday were not good for individual police officers. Yeah. Because no matter what you're told to do, um, you know, if you're seen at a, a, a demonstration or a vigil, whatever you want to call it, against uh, which is protesting against violence against women, and you're being violent to women, it looks bad. Right. Well, again, that's very powerful words you're using. Police officers were not being violent towards women. Police officers were using controlled techniques to arrest an individual. Now, I, I would give you a scenario, Mike. You're, you're a sensible human being. If you stood in your backyard and poured a pint of oil over you and then said to people, restrain me, it would take an awful lot of people. Mm. When someone's wriggling around, we have to protect them. We have a duty of care to them. If, God forbid, they hit their head or something happened to them while we were detaining them, we would be dealt with for that. So we have to take every precaution. And if an individual, male or female, decides they don't want to be detained, please take it from me with someone with a huge amount of policing experience. It is very difficult to detain them. Mm. So we weren't being violent towards people. We were doing what we are controlled to do. Yeah. And, and, and I add to that... Your review that is going to take place, I have no concerns with whatsoever. Right. None whatsoever. And I, and I take Please. your point, Ken, and I, and I understand it. However, it doesn't look good, does it? No. I mean, I, regard, I mean, I you agree. can say that it's controlled uh, and it's all, all of the things that you said, which, which I'm sure it is, but it looks violent. I agree with you fully, but that's a very, very powerful word you're using. It doesn't look good at all. Well, I let me put it this way. If I, if I grabbed a police officer like that, and stuck, yeah. stuck them into the ground, I would be charged with assault, wouldn't I? Right, but then you don't have the powers of an omnicompetent constable to carry out the arrest and everything that goes with it. So you've got to, you know, of course, in answer to your question, of course it would look terrible, but if we are instructed to arrest an individual, then we have to do it in a manner that that individual firstly doesn't get injured 
And I don't think you found anyone got injured from what we did, although you're saying we were violent and everything else. Well, I'm using violent as a word which is a legal word. You know, in in, in legal terms, it was was a violent act. Yeah, okay. I'll take on board what you're saying. What I'm trying to get across is everyone was controlled. It was done in a correct strategy, which we are trained to do. And it was laid out in that way. And every individual was safely arrested and taken away. Mm. And, and I, may I add, most of them were de-arrested once details and everything had been obtained. Right. And as far as the whole situation goes and, and where, where you go from here, I mean, there's a police bill yeah. going through Parliament today and tomorrow, in fact. We were just talking to Deanna Davidson about it, which would su- supposedly give more powers to the police and, and make it easier for them to do their job. But, I mean, it's a very difficult job, it seems to me, to do at the moment because you're being asked to effectively carry out orders to, um, you know, arrest people for breaking COVID rules. But by doing so, you're also breaking COVID rules. You're getting close to people. You're causing there to be uh, a, a sort of a phalanx of, of, of groups, of crowds of people who are getting closer and closer and closer together the more that you try and arrest them, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I do. I totally understand what you're saying. It, it, it's a real, you know, for us, this has been a year... 13 months that, that you you never have seen before and I don't think we'll see again. And it has been really difficult. But in relation to the policing bill, had we not had this over the weekend, it wouldn't have even been talked about and it would have gone through mm. absolutely straightforward. There are some really good things in there. Bear in mind, it hasn't been updated since the 80s, you know, where we just need to tighten up on some areas to make it a lot, a lot easier. Mm. We never, ever... In normal times, stop demonstration, Mike. You know that. It's in our DNA. We don't stop it. We allow it. It has to be facilitated, though, for obvious reasons of safety and everything else. So, listen, I I think people just need to step back a bit because we've seen politicians make some real knee-jerk comments, which are ridiculous over the last 48 hours. Well, they're not the brightest people in the world, Ken, as you know. Well, I'm not here to to challenge their, their ability academically, but what I would say is, you know... Please think about what you're saying because the ramifications are massive and, it, and it's very disappointing when, when they come out with what they're saying. Yes, but one of the things people criticise the police for is the inconsistency, right? But from what you're telling yeah. me, you're suggesting to me that when police officers were skateboarding and dancing with Extinction Rebellion, they were doing that because they were told to do it by their superiors. No, Similar, I'm not you that. Similarly, whoa, whoa, whoa. similarly, I'm not hang on, similarly, when they took the knee to the Black Lives Matter march that they were told to do that. Right, Mike, I haven't told you that at all. So don't be silly. No, I didn't I say you're telling... No, I'm saying by what no. you've told me earlier, which Hold is on. that they operate with Hold people on. giving officers, them instructions. Officers took it upon themselves to do the things that you've just said, right. and they were dealt with for that. Well, that was unwise, wasn't it? What was unwise? For them to do what they did with Extinction Rebellion. And to do And to take the knee with the Black Lives Matter. Absolutely, message. yeah. And they've been dealt with, and it's been talked about, and, it, you know, we move forward. So you can't put that into the context of officers t- doing their job on Saturday evening. Well, you can, actually, because if they do things without being instructed to do them, then that means that they can have a bit of free will and they can have a bit of, you know, shall we okay, say, interpretation. But, yeah, but as I've said to you quite clearly, and I, this is recorded, the actions they took on Saturday, there are no issues with whatsoever, and I welcome the full review by Tom Windsor that is going to take place. That's me as the chairman of the Federation saying that. All right. One last question for you, Ken. Do you think Cresta Dick uh, is a fit and proper person to run the Metropolitan Police? I do. I think she's done some incredible things since she's been the first female commissioner that's ever been in the Metropolitan. 
Um, and I think it's wholly unfair to, to stick. I know she's the leader, so I get that. So, you know, it falls on you sort of thing. But, but I think as you see this unfold and you see what comes out from this review, I, I think she's fully fit to perform the role of Commissioner of London. OK. Ken Marsh, thank you very much indeed. Chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation there, sticking up for his individual members, as you would expect him to do, saying that they had to do what they had to do on Saturday. You may have a different view, in which case we'd like to hear it. 
and the huge loss of prosperity, which we're all going to undergo. Well, it does seem extraordinary, doesn't it? What do you make of this um, lawsuit being brought by Hugh Osmond from Punch Taverns, who's actually doing the unthinkable and asking the government to provide some evidence as to why uh, they think that they can still keep hospitality venues shut down? Well, good luck to him. But, of course, as Simon Dolan found last year when he tried to get a judicial review of the whole thing, uh, the courts are very reluctant to deal with it. The same courts who, as you remember, were, were absolutely keen to pile in on the European issue and on the proroguing of Parliament a couple of years ago, uh, now have suddenly developed a great aversion to any kind of political engagement and don't seem to want to actually engage in this. So as that, I, I very much hope the case is heard. And you can see his point, uh, because the whole thing is, uh, is totally illogical. I, I describe these measures as rain dance measures. They're things people do mm. uh, and then claim that they've had a good result. So if, you, if you caper about at the roundabout at the same time, it's likely to rain. Uh, whooping and, 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 and jumping up and down. You can later on say, well, our rain dance made it rain. Just yeah. the government says all these masks and shutdowns and destruction of businesses uh, have actually saved lives. Well, they say so, but we still, uh, this still remains completely uh, unproven mm. by any causal research. And you notice that in the Daily Telegraph this morning, it's announced that our prime minister has accepted, is the word they use, uh, that he, he locked down too late. Well, he can't accept this because it's not an established fact. Right. What he's done is he's made a kind of show trial confession uh, to the to the Ferguson orthodoxy. That, uh, and, and he's by doing so, he's shamefully, in my view, prejudged any inquiry which may ever take place, which has to ask the question absolutely from the beginning, was this action justified? Did it work? Uh, was, it, uh, was it the correct thing mm. to do in place of what happened? And if that question isn't asked, you might as well not bother with the inquiry at all. Well, exactly right. And also, by, by, by sort of making that admission, uh, he's effectively laying the roadmap for uh, not easing the lockdown any earlier than he said he would, uh, and perhaps not even easing it when he did say that he would. Because one of the things I found interesting this morning was I was listening to a doctor talking about this, uh, the, the, the sort of hesitancy about this new um, the COVID vaccine because of four cases of blood clots in Norway. And right. he made an argument in which he said... Well, the thing is, um, people get blood clots all the time and yes. there's no reason to suggest that it's connected to the vaccine, which, of course, you and I have been saying about COVID all along. But they won't it's say a, it about COVID. They'll only say it about the blood clots. Yeah. It's a wonderfully sane argument, isn't it? Uh, which I'm inclined to accept. Well, indeed. If only it had been applied to this, we would be a, an awful lot better off. But we now have uh, people starting to talk about third wave. Yeah. And a, a lot of attention is being drawn to, uh, to supposed third waves and continental countries. So those who believe that it's absolutely guaranteed that we're all going to be released on the rather provisional dates given by Johnson a few weeks ago, um, they find themselves being disappointed as to the, the, this, this third wave screen. And if people continue uh, to fail to analyse these, uh, the, these uh, waves of, of COVID, so-called, uh, to find out what they really consist of, then it's quite possible this could go on forever. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I thought of that last week when we had the new Antiguan variant of COVID, which actually, when you boiled it down, was two people coming back from Antigua on holiday who had COVID. There was no need to call it the Antiguan variant just because that makes it sound worse. Was it ever stated whether they were ill? No. No, we never. We seldom get this. I, said, I, would, I, I was wondering last week whether anybody had done any work on it. On, on the connection between, and presumably we have the records to do it, uh, the alleged cases, which are actually uh, positive tests, mm. uh, which were which began to appear in very large numbers once the government got its testing going last summer, 
has anyone ever looked into how many of those cases developed into actual illness? No, never have. They've all, I have they've, a feeling nobody has. No, and they've also been very reluctant to ever tell us about the recovery rates of people who went into hospital, which I'm That's sure are very, very high, because the people who died having gone into hospital are very much in the minority, and I would suspect probably less than 5% of those who went in. But it's all these things, and we've discussed this. I, time and again, we've discussed the nature of these supposed facts on, on the basis of which the country has been impoverished and, uh, and strangled and deprived of its freedom. And any intelligent person having this conversation, I fell into conversation this morning with a, with a, a listener to your program, Michael Paul, uh, who, who endorsed very, very much what I said. But mm. he, lots of people, perhaps 15% of the population, understand this. But the other 85%, and indeed the entire political class, and almost all of my media colleagues, have completely bought uh, the other argument. How are we ever to escape from this? And if we don't escape from this, then what 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 hope is there? I mean, people criticise me for saying, well, we, we, we've lost the propaganda war. But here I am, standing here, still saying perfectly sensible things, mm. which I've been saying since March of 2020, uh, and still reaching a tiny minority of those people who I wish to reach. What can I do? I have a similar problem with this extraordinary business of the poison gas. Mm. Uh, what, of the yes, I was going to come on to that. Yeah, tell us a bit about that. It's astonishing. I mean, the, here we have a, a, a scandal, in my view, as, as big as the, the discovery that the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq never existed, mm. which is serious dissent by very qualified and experienced inspectors at the Organization of the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is a United Nations United Nations watchdog on poison gas. Mm. And I've been trying to get this uh, out of the open for a very long time. And it, uh, my own newspaper, the Mail on Sunday, has covered it very properly. Uh, one or two uh, people, the, the WikiLeaks uh, uh, website's called the Grey Zone, and uh, uh, the, the late Robert Fisk on The Independent have, have also covered it, and Tucker Carlson in the United States. Otherwise, the, the media have totally ignored it. And what's more, if anybody raises it, uh, it's uh, they're immediately dismissed as uh, apologists for the appalling uh, despot of mm. Syria, uh, Bashar Assad. In fact, this ha- this this happened over the weekend. Uh, an amazingly uh, qualified person, Admiral Lord West, uh, the, the 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 Falklands veteran and hero, who then became a security minister, first sea lord, is, mm. has actually joined the the cause of saying we should look into this OPCW business. And the Foreign Office, when I contacted them, uh, said that all those who'd signed the plea for this to happen, including Lord West, were effectively whitewashing uh, Bashar Assad. It's a ridiculous thing to say about somebody like, uh, no. like Lord West, who absolutely established his patriotism, a man who, who, whose ship was sunk under him by the by Argentine bombing. This isn't somebody who can be impugned as some kind of apologist for anybody. He's a British patriot and somebody who stands up for this country, not for anybody else. And yet they still use this language. And shocking as it is, and I reported it in full in, in the Mail on Sunday, and not a, not a single other paper, as far as I can discover, or any broadcasting station has even bothered to mention it, uh, either last night or this morning. Yeah. Thing. And this is the Foreign Office's kind of a propaganda campaign, if you like, against those people like yourself, uh, who have questioned whether or not uh, the Syrians did what they were alleged to have done. Well, it's always it's, it's 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 always the same thing. Instead of actually taking on the argument, saying, "Well, here here we have two very experienced uh, inspectors who've been at the scenes of many things and who understand them well," so actually, we think the 
what the OPCW is saying has been adopted unacceptably to give a false impression. And that's what they say. I've mm. talked to them at length. Uh, instead of saying, oh, well, that's worth looking into. We should have an inquiry. Just, all you get is a blizzard of slime. And people say, Yo, you're, trying to, you're, you're an apologist. You're a war crimes denier. And you're an apologist for this, this filthy uh, despot mm. in, in, in Syria. Matt, I have to say, I have a 20-year record which I can produce of extremely critical writing about the Assad despotism, father and son in Syria, which is more than the Foreign Office can say, because it's not all that long since they invited Assad to London to meet the Queen. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're, they're well, the Assad apologists, if you like. Well, this is the thing. I mean, they now take a view, and the polarisation of the, the government continues, that if somebody is a bad man, then everything that is said about him, which is bad, is OK. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. Well, it's also, here's, here's the thing. I, what, what is, if, if we're worried about Syria, and I have to say that anybody who knows what's going on there must be distressed by the huge numbers of people who've been turned from normal human beings into refugees mm. and the quite large number of people who've been turned from normal human beings into corpses in the past 10 years. Right. You should want that to end. Uh, that ending it uh, seems to me to be the most important thing, to, to try and bring that country back mm. uh, to a state of, of, of peace and prosperity again after the awful things it's been through. But what's going on here is the prolonging of a terrible war uh, kept going for years by foreign intervention, by people who wanted, for various reasons, nothing to do, in, in my view, with the, with the state of the or happiness of the Syrian people, uh, who wanted to overthrow the regime there. Uh, and on and on and on they go. And it, it, it's just, it's terrible for, for anybody. And I wonder to... why, as well, Peter, nobody ever seems to draw... Um, the connection between the refugee problem in Syria and the refugee problem in Western Europe. Because, of course, I was talking to somebody who knows that region pretty well the other day, and Lebanon is pretty much about to go the same way as Syria. They've got no money. Uh, they've got no way of getting any money. They're reliant upon you know uh, foreign powers to help them out. And thanks to all of the, the wars, but also that terrible bomb, uh, that blast that happened last year, which destroyed sort of half of Beirut, you know, it's a very, very poverty-stricken country, and more and more people are leaving it to come to Western Europe. And the fact that they don't see this has got any kind of knock-on effect on us is remarkable. Well, two, th uh, two, two things. I mean, the, the Syrian intervention is one, but there's also two others. The original Iraq war, and that mad Blairite uh, attack on Iraq, the, the stupidest things ever done by any government in history, and, the, and David Cameron's largely forgotten uh, intervention in Libya, which had the same effect, mm. and which was, was produced the enormous migration across the Mediterranean, which has transformed Europe as well. These are... Uh, if th th these have resulted in the mass movements of people who quite reasonably have shifted from, from homes which they used to have, which have turned into war zones and hunger zones and places where there is no work. They, so where have they come? They've come here. And this would not have happened had it not been for the arrogant stupidity of people who think that war is the solution to every problem and launch wars in foreign countries mm. uh, without thought. And that's really what this is about, in my view. But I, you can't. You can't get to grips with it without being abused. So no. I, I just, I just, but I'm astonished uh, that the Foreign Office couldn't see that accusing someone such as Admiral Lord West of, of being a, a whitewasher of, of Assad was ridiculous. Well, particularly. Uh, really rebounds in their faces. And this yes. is a pretty counsel, for goodness sake, a highly decorated person. It really is extraordinary what, what they will do to discredit anybody that they don't think is uh, is worthy of listening to, which which in his case is quite remarkable. Let's just go back to, I wanted to award my tweet of the weekend to Vera Hobhouse, who's the Lib Dem MP for Bath, who said this, 
Until now, I have accepted the restriction on our liberty imposed by COVID. But last night's event on Clapham Common makes me wonder whether I have been too complacent. If the right to have your voices heard is shut down in such a draconian way, something is very wrong. I mean, and she clearly has no sense of irony. Um, I found I found that quite a remarkable thing to tweet out. Well, as, as Jesus said, we rejoice over the sheep which was lost and is found. I, I think that's just, just, just be pleased, even even if someone like that, for goodness sake, has finally realised uh, that something bad is going on, then then good, perhaps more will be. I, it, it, it should have been the case that the Guardian reading classes in this country should have said from the start, hey, look, our liberties are under threat. We're liberals. We're supposed to be in favour of that sort of thing. So we should be against our liberties being under threat. But in fact, all the, the left-wingers and liberals in the country have been keen supporters of the most illiberal policy in modern times. It's astonishing. Well, if they're waking up, if, if what happened in Clapham makes them wake up, then I'm pleased. Uh, anything that makes people wake up, however late it is, I'd rather they woke up than they stayed asleep. Let's finish up with a, a comment perhaps on the royal family because you wrote about them at the weekend as well. Uh, it's been quite a traumatic week for them, I suppose, given that a week ago uh, we were all getting ready to watch the uh, uh, the Oprah Winfrey show and the uh, Harry and Meghan show, for want of a better word. But it's been quite a remarkable week for the royal family, hasn't it? Well, it has. Uh, I, I lost the world to live during the Oprah thing. There's, there's something about that that interviewing style, if interviewing can be called, which... Uh, which, which, which makes me feel that I've probably been short of sleep lately, but I <laughs> fought my way. But, but the end of it, I just felt that it, it, we, we, why is it that we, we so worship the American system and culture which produces stuff like this and the, the whole psycho-babbly society which exists over there? Uh, we, we seem to me to have a, at least to have had a more responsible and more grown-up society. And I believe this is a result of having a monarchy rather than an elected president. Mm. I think that there's something about constitutional monarchy which is uh, which is which creates very civilized societies in which it's unusual to find mass hysteria or torture chambers or anything of that kind. There's nothing so great about republics, and the danger of all this is that it will destroy the whole idea of monarchy, and we'll end up with a republic. Republics aren't so great. Uh, there've been a lot of really terrible republics. Mm. In one of my uh, my most uh, pointed examples is the Republic of South Africa, in which they held a, a whites-only referendum, which voted to get rid of the Queen, because mm. they saw quite rightly that the British monarchy would be a restraint on their plans uh, to introduce a completely racially bigoted, divided society. So they got rid of the Queen. German Democratic Republic, East Germany Republic, Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, People's Republic of China. There's no guarantee that once you get a republic, you're suddenly going to become more free and better governed. Uh, in fact, I think if you look at the a list of the, the longest lasting uh, free law governed countries in the world, uh, at the top of the list, almost all of them are constitutional monarchies. Uh, uh, yeah. The best systems of government you could possibly have. I, I don't mind the, the, the royal family themselves. I mean, I, I'd be quite happy to have a monarchy without a royal family at all. You could just, you could just have a have some kind of guy in, a, in, a, in an office pretending to be the, the <laughs> monarch. But the it's actual sort of like system, the Wizard of Oz kind of idea. Yeah, but the actual system of constitutional monarchy is very, very good, and we shouldn't get rid of it. Why yeah. spit? No, interesting as well, because you made that point about the US president, that basically in times of war or times of trouble, uh, Americans are much less likely to criticise the president because yeah. of the way that he is revered and the office is revered. And they often say, even when Donald Trump was president, you know, we respect the office of the president, even if we don't respect the man. Yeah, if you watch the great uh, liberal soap opera, The West Wing, yeah, they all stand up when the president walks into the room and yeah. stuff like that. 
never do with, uh, I hope they wouldn't do it anyway, with Johnson or, or, or Blair. Right. Uh, the, the, they treat him as a, as a monarch and you have to be very, very polite to him. And also they have terrible, there's no, there's no recourse. If anybody working for Richard Nixon, realizing the criminal enterprises in which he was engaged, had wanted to, to uh, protest against it, there was nowhere to go mm. because all all loyalty goes to the president. And if the, if the president says this illegal thing must be done, you can't challenge it. Uh, and it's, it's so often it leads to hysteria. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, the great liberal hero, who locked up all the Japanese Americans in the country completely unfairly after Pearl Harbor. Or Woodrow Wilson, who the astonishing way in which he locked up the, the great Labour leader Eugene Debs, the United States has these frenzies of uh, of, of illiberality, uh, which uh, we don't tend to have because of the fury of the fury of democracy. In my view, the United States again, Guantanamo Bay, mm. uh, extraordinary rendition, uh, the actual approval of torture uh, by the CIA. It's extraordinary the things they get up to because they don't, in my view, have the restraint of constitutional monarchy in their system. Yes, all they have is the restraint of their two houses if they happen to be uh, populated by people from the opposite side of the, of the fence. But if they're not, they can do whatever they like, really. Yeah. So the system of campaign finance means that, OK, all right, so people get elected by large numbers of votes, but what they're also getting elected by is huge piles of dollar bills. Mm. And the, the, these elections are contests of money. Uh, far more than their contest of genuine uh, popularity or political understanding. And I, I don't, it's it's not, and the powers of the American president are interesting, uh, quite like the powers of the monarchy that used to exist here. He can pardon people, for goodness sake. Uh, he can veto bills from mm. Congress. Uh, he's extraordinarily personally powerful and, uh, and, and he's accompanied by a band playing Hail to the Chief uh, <laughs> when he goes to ceremony. It's, it's, I don't think politicians should have that. No. Or 21 gun salutes. What gigantic Boeing 747s mm. fly around the world in. It, it, it makes them, it, it gives them a sense of, of, of uh, undeserved grandeur and it makes them behave in crazy ways, as we saw, to get back to that subject, as we saw in, in, in Iraq mm. uh, earlier on this century. It was shocking, a stupid disaster, which we shall be paying for for many years to come. Indeed. Peter, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, as ever. Peter Hitch is there for the Mail on Sunday uh, with a whole variety of uh, very interesting views on a whole variety of subjects which we will explore throughout the course of this week. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Dr. Simon Clark, microbiologist at the University of Reading, because we've got a few questions on the COVID front as well. Simon, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, it does seem, I'm not asking you to comment on the whole sort of police issue here, but it does seem rather bizarre, does it not, to ask the police to enforce a rule which inv involves making that rule uh, actually get more um, sort of uh, uh, likely to be to, to be demonstrated against. You know, the more people you have in a crowded space, the more you push them around, the more crowded that space is going to be. Yeah, it clearly shows uh, how easy it is for things to become go from being well-intentioned to being uh, counterproductive. Yes. Well, I mean, my verdict on the whole thing was that everybody was kind of in the wrong, really. So we'll, we'll leave it at that and, and, and move yeah. on. I'm concerned slightly about all of the countries who keep saying that because of the four uh, cases in Norway of people getting blood clots, that they think that the, uh, the rollout of the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, should be somehow halted, because I think that's going to upset quite a lot of people and maybe cast doubt in a lot of people's minds uh, as to whether or not it's safe. 
Yeah, again, I think it's something that's counterproductive. As far as we know, uh, the, the incidence of blood clotting has been no greater than it would be in the, the, the general unvaccinated population. Mm. You know, people get blood clots, relatively few, but then relatively few have had them after the vaccine as well. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of difference. If they, they've got something that they think looks odd rather than just a few people getting blood clots, then uh, they really ought to say, because, you know, people do want to be open about mm. this. They do want to do it right. Um, and uh, I don't genuinely believe that anybody's got anything to hide. But uh, No, I don't think so When either, they do but, things like this, it but, makes it difficult. Well, it does, because, I mean, in Norway, they've also said there's no conclusive proof even that the, the yeah. two events are connected, you know, the vaccine being given to the people and the blood clots then... Uh, occurring. The thing that I found interesting this morning was listening to a doctor saying, you know, the point is people do get blood clots, rather like you've said. Um, but they yeah. say that about the blood clots of the vaccine, but they wouldn't say that about COVID uh, and the death rate, because of course that would be counterproductive to uh, the numbers of people who have died. And I don't, don't want you to call me too cynical for saying that, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it, like I say, it's, it's a sort of counter-equivalence. To become counterproductive, yeah. Mm. So as far as the, um, uh, the, the Irish being the first, I think, to say that they wanted to stop the rollout. What do you think? Why do you think they've done that? I really don't know. Um, it, you know, I've, I've seen online, look on Twitter, there's suggestions of Brit bashing. I'm not sure I'd buy that because what it's going to do is slow down in, in each of these countries the, the vaccination of their population. Mm. And inevitably, international comparisons are going to be made on newspapers and all the rest of it. And it's not going to look good for them. So, um, again, something else that is, is counterproductive. Mm. And what do you make of what's going on in parts of Europe at the moment, Italy in particular, I think Germany to some extent as well, uh, looking at a much higher incidence again of infection, people talking about a possible third wave. Is that partly because they don't have the vaccination numbers that we have? Uh, yeah, I think it, it, at least in part it will be. Uh, we shouldn't expect anyway that uh, waves of infection will be entirely synchronous. They won't happen necessarily at exactly the same time. But uh, we just don't seem to be under the same pressure that uh, places like Germany and Italy are. Mm. No, I mean, the government is still saying follow the data, not the dates, and don't change the dates. And they're giving five weeks and uh, and all of that for everything to, to be developed. What are you seeing from the first week of schools opening up? Because I'm assuming, I mean, I have only two very small anecdotal pieces of information for you. One from uh, a guy... I spoke to called Roger Layton, who runs a bunch of schools in London. He told me last week they they uh, tested, I think, 700 pupils and found not one case of coronavirus. In my son's school, similarly, I think they tested something like 95% of the, the kids in the school and found no cases at all. So, I mean, that's quite encouraging. That is encouraging, yes. And my understanding is that the, the numbers of infections are very small. Let's hope they stay very small. That's what's going to happen. Uh, um, the, the bad result would from this would be a sign seeing those small numbers of infections growing quite rapidly. Mm. That's what we don't want. No, quite. And what would be the reason for that? I mean, I was out and about this weekend doing various things. Lots of people out, you know, lots of people out shopping, yeah. lots of people going in and out of you know, DIY shops, garden centres. The things that are open are quite well attended. Uh, yeah, but um, we're told that most infection happens in the home. Uh, I think that's likely to be the case. Of course, we want to stop kids getting it so they don't take it into the home. Uh, if it doesn't get taken into the home, it's not going to spread. That's why we're concerned about schools. Mm. But uh, you make quite a good point about other places. Um, you know, if, if they can open 
uh, without causing so much of a problem, then uh, the foot's going to be let off the brake a little bit more, I think. Well, I think, you know, we do have to take account, and you know, you know I've said this for many weeks and months, you know, we do, I think, have to take account of people's um, ability to put up with much more of this, their ability yeah. to kind of n- need to get back to work, to need to get back to making money, you know, and they need to get back to a bit more normality for their mental health, if nothing else. Yeah, we all do that. I mean, th- this is, it's, 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 uh, getting beyond the joke now but um the, the alternative would have been uh, hospitals filled up for even longer um but it, you're, i can't disagree with your uh, sentiment that uh, everyone wants to get back to normal mm. i certainly do yeah i know i know there are sort of uh, i think there are a lot of people also doing a lot more than than they were doing and if that's not leading to more um infections then that's also a pretty good sign i mean i i hear from people anecdotally that older people who have had the vaccine are now more willing to go out and about and that may well be the reason why there seems to be more people around yeah and that's entirely understandable it's a good sign that uh, they're able to go out and about without driving seemingly without driving up the numbers of infections it's an entirely positive uh, observation yeah and what's your sense about the testing in schools do you think that they'll do it for the next couple of weeks and then Christmas and then Christmas Easter holidays kick in um, and then they may not do it after Easter if, if they don't think they need to uh, good question. I think there might be some after Easter to, to see what effect uh, that holiday and having kids back mm. uh, at home will make. And then they might decide after a few weeks after the Easter holiday that it isn't necessary. But I've got a feeling that there will be some testing uh, after Easter as well. Yeah, right. And as far as the rest of um, uh, the kind of the, the NHS is concerned, um, presumably things have calmed down to quite a large extent, haven't they? Uh, my understanding is yes, uh, the number of hospital admissions is going down um, quite rapidly. I think and let's hope it stays that way. There are still uh, some people in hospital uh, that will carry on. I think for uh, a few weeks yet, maybe even a couple of months. But it's all heading in the right direction, and I understand particularly hard hit hospitals are now returning some of their wards back to uh, to normal use right. where they had to uh, convert them into being covid wards that's good so they presumably then can start yeah. catching up with some of the delayed stuff that's been Indeed. Uh, put off that's that's all it's all very good news i'm so unused to talking to you about good news simon <laughs> i've kind of run out of things to ask you now so i'm going to let you go dr simon clark microbiologist at the university of reading thank you uh, very much indeed it is encouraging and if you were out this weekend i bet you like me were quite surprised to see quite how busy it all was i mean i i was in certain places uh, where i've never seen quite so much traffic to be honest i mean not ever never mind you know before the pandemic before you know this time last year but i've got a little story to tell you about what happened at the weekend as well coming up which i will tell you uh, very shortly mid-morning with mike graham talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio now here's the thing i had one of those weird strange weekends right which was slightly accident prone i don't know why do you know sometimes when stuff happens and it just kind of continues to happen you're not really sure why it happens started out badly on friday friday night i was on kevin o'sullivan's show uh, he asked me to come on about 10 to 8 to talk about uh, you know how crazy everything is so in fact um i think we'd already had dinner but i hadn't actually had a drink yet because i thought well i might as well be sober when i go on talk radio because it's normally what i am and so uh, i literally poured myself i finished doing the thing with him poured myself a glass of red wine took it into the living room, um, sat down, immediately knocked it over. Just all over the floor. Full glass of wine. And it's quite a heavy Rioja as well, so that didn't help. Straight onto the carpet, which is a very light colour. This, of course, created quite a scene. 
Uh, there was a lot of shouting, um, <laughs> a lot of running about. Not only um, did the carpet have to be uh, sort of steeped with all sorts of different kitchen appliances and things sprayed on it, I was then ordered to go into the shed to retrieve the big carpet cleaner, which is like a big hoover, which, of course, it was dark, you know. There was a bit of sh more shouting and sort of struggling to try and get this thing out of the shed. My man finally managed to get it. So this whole thing took about 45 minutes, at which point I still not really had a drink because I then wasn't allowed to have another drink until uh, I could be sure that I wasn't going to knock it over. Now, a couple of other things happened. Nothing really major happened. But then Saturday, um, we decided we were going to make a curry, right? So I had some chicken, chicken breasts come, coming straight out of the freezer. So I put them in, uh, I, I sort of cut the top of the plastic, you know, they were very solidly frozen, stuck it in the microwave, decided to put on defrost for a little while. I opened it up after a couple of minutes to... <laughs> I, can't, I still can't believe it. opened it up after a couple of minutes to see how it was getting on. It was on fire. The chicken was on fire. I kid you not, something had happened. I don't know what it was, but apparently this particular box of chicken, instead of just being paper and plastic, had some kind of metal in it. And the metal had somehow been ignited by the microwave. And there were flames coming out of it. And I'm going, it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. The mother of my children said, it smells like an Indian restaurant in here. I, I didn't tell her that it was a fire, obviously. <laughs> and I basically just put it under the tap and, and wiped all the sort of the, the scorch marks off it and, and put, it in the, put it in the pot. It was fine. It tasted great. It made it really good. It put coconut milk. It's lovely. Inexplicably, nothing else really bad, terrible happened. Inexplicably, though, Apparently this morning at four o'clock in the morning, I wasn't even there. The fire alarm uh, went off, the smoke alarm went off and they couldn't put it, they couldn't stop it. The dog wasn't happy at all about that because dogs hear it even worse than we do, you know. Anyway, that was my weekend. Um, so I just thought I'd let you know. So, you know, if anything bad has happened to you this weekend, rest assured, that I think there's some kind of karma going on, some kind of weirdness going on because there were a few other little bits of things that happened as well. Anyway, never mind. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.